Would you turn to Nehemiah chapter 10? Nehemiah 10. Now, I know many of you thought that this past date of October 31st is where we celebrate Halloween. What you don't realize is there was another anniversary, a 500-year anniversary. On October 31st, 500 years ago, in 1517, was Martin Luther's infamous posting of what we call the 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg Castle Church Door. There were 95 opinions against the excesses and corruption of the church. And one of the big ones that he was kind of railing against, and you need to know this, he loved the church. He was trying to create a conversation on this matter. He wasn't looking to divide the church. But the big one was selling indulgences for the forgiveness of sins. The doctrine went something like this, that if you had a loved one that died and they're on their way to hell, for every dollar you gave, you could, they could, would spend a less, one less year or time period in purgatory. And if you gave enough, they'd eventually make it to heaven. I guess that's one way to raise revenue for the church. I don't know. But here was the five priorities that were listed in this document. And you've heard these before. We'll see them on the screen. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, and the glory of God alone. It was those five things that what we now call the Reformation rested on. But what we need to understand is Martin Luther had a passion to pursue God. But I hope you realize passion is not enough. Often, even though we're passionate about something, often the most important things are easily pushed to the back burner. What we need is a sense of urgency. See, urgency says how much this matters right now. Something needs to be done right now. Can't wait. Not going to wait. We're going to do it right now. So he grabbed those 95 theses and he tacked them to the door. And if you think that's a bit unusual, understand the way they communicated back in those days is they hung letters on church doors because that's where the people gathered and the people would read these things. I guess it was their social media of their day. See, life is not about what we can do or could do or should do. Life is about what we must do. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. He says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Look at that word necessity. It's an obligation. It's a must do. It's a sense of urgency. And we know that sense of urgency drove Paul to do what we would call strange things. He would get beat up in a city, almost die. They'd leave him lay there for dead. Everybody's looking at him. He wakes up. And what's he do? He goes, I got to go back in the city again. They're saying, don't do that. They're going to kill you. So be it. This is the passion and urgency that drove Nehemiah. To first rebuild a wall, but it doesn't stop there. His real passion and urgency pushed ahead to restore the people of God to their covenant that made them the witness of the glory of God to the rest of the world. And this is where we pick the story up. 
If you're new, what happened so far is Nehemiah had a cushy job in the palace. And he, because his heart was broken, decided to go back and help rebuild Jerusalem that was devastated, laid in ruin for 120 years. And he got the wall rebuilt. And then they started reestablishing worship. So they had this incredible week-long worship services. But it doesn't stop there. And this is where we pick the story up. First of all, note in Nehemiah 9, 38, just before we get to chapter 10, we have these words. Because of all this, because of everything that transpired, because of everything that was going on, because of all the opposition, because of all the rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the homes, because of the worship service, because of all the fasting, because of all this, we made a firm covenant in writing and sealed the document. And on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So you understand what's happening here. He says, okay, it's one thing to rebuild a wall. It's one thing to have a worship service. It's one thing to say we're going to do this. He says, but I want to put it in writing. And we're going to put it in writing. And we're going to have everybody sign it. Nehemiah 10, verse 1. On the seals are the names of, and you have the lists there. I'm not going to take the time to read those. But look down at verse 28. And what's it say? The rest of the people... Now, remember, there were still those who opposed all this. Remember, there were still nobles. Remember, there were still Jews. There were still people outside that were half Jews. Remember, there were still enemies. But everybody who stood in that worship service, everybody who helped rebuild the wall, everybody who's been taking this journey, out comes the document, and they start signing this thing. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. A new set of priorities. Actually, it's really an old set. They were there all along. But for these people, it was a new set of priorities. And this is a separation of core values. In a world, they followed God. They didn't follow the core values of their world. And it talks about their wives, their sons, their daughters. And I love this phrase here. All who have knowledge and understanding. So you get the picture here. Anybody who stood, anybody who helped rebuild, anybody who was convicted by the word of God, anybody who said, you know what, this makes a lot of sense. They're going to sign this Covenants. Now, what's critical here is the head and the heart. They know this to be true, but somehow it has to translate down into their lives. Verse 29. And all these people join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rule and his statutes. Unity of mission. But you get what he's saying here. I mean, this is fascinating. He's saying, listen, we're going to sign this. And if we don't do this, we know we're going to get cursed. We call it the curse of sin. So in this whole declaration, in this whole signing, they're getting very serious about what their next steps are. Now look at verse 30. We will not give our daughters 
to the peoples of the land or take their daughters to our sons. Now, you read this and it almost sounds racist, doesn't it? But here's what this means. They would not allow their families to enter into marriages, and we're going to see later on, and businesses with people who worshiped other gods. They were going to adopt a new model of marriage. They were going to adopt a new model of family. They were going to adopt a new model of business. And they're going to say, listen, anybody who doesn't believe like us, we're not going to enter into a relationship with them. Verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. See, there's the business model, the separation. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So what they're moving down through is some very practical, relational business model things. Here it talks about the Sabbath year. They're going to trust God every seventh year to let the land lay fallow. And anybody and anybody's neighbor could go through and take whatever sprung up. It was one of the way they took care of their poor. But you understand this model says this. I have to trust God enough for two years, just not one year. It goes back to the model in the 40 years of wilderness when every day they just took enough of manna. If they took too much, it rotted. But on Friday, they were supposed to take two days. And they're saying, wait a minute, but if I take two days back then, it rots. But on Friday, somehow it sustained itself in Saturday. And here was the cancellation of every debt as well. A new business model. Of course, there was the seven of sevens, the year of Jubilee, where they had to trust God for three years and where every single debt was canceled. So you see the new business model. Verse 32, we will also take our, on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our Lord. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work in the house of our God. This is what we call a temple tax, a half shekel. Normal was the rate. But because of the economic hardships, Nehemiah and his board said, listen, let's just do a third. But everyone's going to do a third. And of course, you have a list of things that it went for. Look at verse 34. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering, another offering, to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it's written in the law. The wood offering, very precious commodity, was wood. And you go back to Nehemiah, and it's why he asked for the king's forest to rebuild the gates and to rebuild the beams. But the altar had to keep burning day in and day out. So they started saying, listen, we're going to draw lots. But, you know, in in a year basis, it's all going to go around. We're all going to help. We're all going to give wood to keep the altar fires going. Look at verse 35. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit, every tree, year by year to the house of the Lord. First fruit offering. Any farmer knows that the first is the best and it's the most profitable. If you got your crop in before someone else, you sold it for twice what you would later that same period of time, maybe next week or the week. 
It's a matter of trust. God says, I want the very best. You give to me first, and then I'll take care of you. Also in verse 36, also to bring to the house of our God, the, the, to the priest who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of your sons and of your cattle. Now, they're not going to sacrifice their sons, but they give them over to the work of the ministry, the firstborn. And the cattle, they give that to the cause, as is written in the law. And the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough, first of our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring the Levites, the tithes from our ground. You note the categories, and you know why there's so many categories? Because human nature is what? Well, they didn't put this in the list of what I have to give. So therefore, I don't have to give this one. And if you start adding all this up, I mean, he covers every single bit of grounds. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, will be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of all the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of our storehouse. Tithes, 10%. First went to the Levites and priests. It went to personnel. Then on the 90% that was left, they tithed again. And that went to the annual feasts. That went to events. And then there's a third tithe. Every three years they took. And that went to the poor. Start accumulating the business model. Start accumulating the economic model. Start accumulating what God says I want first. And they're going to sign off on this. Verse 39. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers And then he says, we will not neglect the house of our God. You know what that means? It means they're not going to neglect worship. They're not going to wake up Saturday morning. That's their Sabbath, their day worship, and say, you know what? I'm kind of too tired. I'm just not going to go this morning. Now, back then, it was an all-day thing. Here, it's just kind of an hour or two. But they said, we have to make this a priority. I look at this. And I know it seems a bit innocuous with all these names and everything else and say, how does this apply to us? But here's what I read. Nehemiah was calling the people to have courage to keep and live what was most important. And by having them sign it, he was saying, this is just not something we have to do, but there's an urgency about this. And we have to do it right now. Not next week, not next month, not next year, but right now. And I want you to sign on the dotted line. Did you pick up the categories? Let me break them down for you. The first was home, marriage and the kids. The first was, he says, you know what? You're going to raise godly families, holy marriages. You're going to keep the idols out of their families. I was at a conference recently and the one speaker, Andy Stanley, stood up and said this. He says, never give up the role that is unique to you for a role that someday someone else will take over. Do you hear what he's saying? What's unique to you is what? It's your marriage. It's your kids. It's your grandkids. Nobody else can replace you in those things. Your business, someone's going to buy it out someday. Someone's going to take it over. 
But never give up the role that is unique to you for a role that someday someone else will take over. But that was the first category. He says, listen, you're going to create holy homes. Second was business. Follow God's economic strategy. Now, we don't like this business plan because it doesn't fit into our American idea of the way things ought to be. It violates our sense of what we often use the word fairness because why should we just forgive a debt every seven years or why should we just allow a person to go completely out of debt every 50 years? Doesn't make sense because they owe us. Third category was stewardship, generosity. Did you find the multiple ways they were encouraged to give? This tithe, this tithe, this offering, this offering. And God says, I want you to do this first. And then worship. Make it a priority. And so these four categories, he was saying, listen, you need to have courage to keep this because I know human nature. And the reason you're in the mess you are in right now is because the previous generation did not keep those. And they lived out the curse of sin. See, courage is taking what you know about God and applying it to what you do not know about your future. That's the principle of the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. It's the principle of the ties because you're taking things away and saying, listen, I'm going to do this because God commands me to do this and I'll learn to live on whatever's left over. In America, we kind of reverse that and we say, listen, I'll give God whatever I have left over instead of first. Because I got a plan for this and I got to have this. And, you know, there's retirement and there's vacation. And Now, if you haven't noticed, the world's crazy. Amen? <laughs> Whole lot of instability. There is social instability. There is economic instability. There is political instability. There is religious instability. Even in my own lifetime inside the Christian circle, do you realize that Jesus was supposed to come back at least five times? And he didn't listen. (laughs) But I got news for you. He is coming back. Amen? And until then... His will is his church. And the church's primary role is to display God's glory. Its primary role is to introduce people to Christ, to walk with them and help them to become people of God. And this is what we need an urgency about. Just not passion. But it has to be done right now. So I got thinking. What are some steps? If we're going to be courageous followers of Jesus, what are some steps that we have to take in order to get there? Now, recently I was at a conference, and so I'm going to borrow these next four points from a variety of speakers. But here's what I heard, and here's what I want to share with you. Now, I read a passage last week. It's Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to go there in a moment. In fact, I want you to put it up. Well, not put it up yet, courage. But here's the first point. We have to have courage to cut away certain things. Each generation has to pay their own price. It cannot live on the back of the passion and urgency of the previous generation. 
And each generation has to figure out what it means to go and lead in their homes, in their businesses, in their stewardship, in their worship. In order to do that, they have to cut away some things. And so I asked myself this question this week. As the church, are we moving the kingdom of God priorities forward or are we simply meeting? Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read it from the message because I, I like the way they express these two things. I read this last week, but a paraphrase is a paraphrase, okay? It takes God's word and they paraphrase it. So listen to what this paraphrase says. Do you see what this means? Followers of Jesus. All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on. It means we better get on with it. Strip down, start running, and never quit. You know, how many times in athletic events does the coach say something like this? I don't want you to leave anything on the field. When you walk off that field, I want you to have given your best. I want you to give in everything. I want nothing left. That should be a thing that we do. We talk about dying to self. That means you don't leave anything on the table. Never quit. No extra spiritual fat. No parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way. Cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor right alongside of God. And we know for those of us that are running the race, that are found in Christ, that we're going to be in a place of honor someday. It's called heaven. Amen? Amen. And this life, the choice you make determines the next life. I know far too many people, though, who just quit in the middle of the race. And they got reasons, they got justifications, they got excuses. But here Paul talks about cutting two things away. The spiritual fat, if you have a a Bible, it talks about weights. And you notice it says weights and sin. So weights are different. Weights are good things that distract us or hold us back. And you ask, what can be a weight? People can be a weight. Relationships that insist you not being sold out for Jesus. I read this past week a book Irving Manis wrote, and he talked about one of the hardest decisions he ever made. He said, I was dating a young lady in college. She was a Christian. He wasn't. They dated two years. She finally led him to accept Christ, and she was so happy. But his passion grew, and it created a stress in their relationship. In fact, they dated two more years, so they dated a total of four years. And at the end of those four years, she finally said to him, I get that you want to sell out to Jesus, but can't you let someone else do that? He was the hardest thing I ever had to do was break up with someone that he loved. But he knew that she was going to hold him back if they entered into that marriage. What are some other good things? Here's my favorite thing to pick on, social media. Some people are too busy tweeting and commenting on Facebook that they don't have the time to have the courage to lead. And to you, I say this. You're entitled to your opinions, but you don't have to give them to everybody else. Amen? 
Keep them to yourself and get on with what God has called you to get on to. Some people have to cut away their fears. Fears are stopping them from making decisions they know they need to make. But they're thinking about the future saying, I don't know what's going to happen if I. Some people have to cut away their doubts. They got all these reasons. Don't let your doubts, don't let your fears control you. But it's just not good things, okay? It's also parasitic sins. I like the way they paraphrase that. You know, sins are parasitic. They take life from us. And I know we don't like to talk about sin. I know people get offended when we talk about sin. And my advice to you this morning is get over it. Why? Because life and death are determined by it. Let's say I go to the doctor and they find a tumor. And they gather doctors around and the diagnosis is the cancer. I mean, the tumor's cancerous and it's very treatable, they say. But in their discussion, they say, you know, we, we don't want to offend Greg. And we don't want Greg to feel judged or we don't want him to feel bad. Because if we tell him this, he's going to feel bad that he has cancer. So why don't we just tell Greg he has a bad cold, send him away home with some DayQuil. Do you know what we would call that? We would call that medical malpractice. And I got to admit, churches today are committing spiritual malpractice with something far more serious than cancer. Cancer leads to death of the body. Sin leads to death of the soul. All of eternity. I mean, we preach it. We say it. We believe it. We say we're passionate about it, but there's no sense of urgency because we do nothing with it. Why? Because I think there's Christians today that are far more concerned about being liked by people around them rather than being loved by God. And we cannot pretend there is no sin. But I got good news. You know what the good news is? There's cure for sin. And the good news sets people free. And the cure is Jesus. And we have to call it what it is so we can deal with it. So if there is the sin of gossip in your life, you need to call it and cure it by Jesus. If there's slander, if there's greed, pride, sexual immorality, selfish thinking behaviors that are destroying marriages and families, you call it what it is and you allow Jesus to cure it. See, sin is not a judgment issue. It's a freedom issue. So we have to have the courage to cut away certain things. Secondly, there has to be the courage to heal. Many people are so damaged. If you take the time to hear people's stories, I think sometimes we sit there in shock and wonder for those that were raised in Christian homes and raised by two-parent families, how evil humanity can get. But so often they find Jesus and they want to go out and change the world. And what we forget is that we have to have courage for Jesus to change us. Remember last week, transformation begins with who? Me. Say it with me. Transformation begins with me. Call sin what it is. Tear down our idols. Jesus puts a spotlight on us, not to condemn us, but to heal us. The problem in America is we want to be fixed. And by that I mean we want fixed right now. Give us a pill. Fast. Painless. We want to blame somebody else for our condition. But transformation is a process. And like the psalmist said, yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because 
you are with me. We don't like the valley, the shadow of death. Here's the third thing that we have to have the courage. There's the courage to cut away certain things, the courage to heal, and the courage to keep Jesus. Let me explain what I mean. We just celebrated communion. We call it remembering. You know, we got to stop remembering and start keeping. See, we remember and go through the ritual. When we keep Jesus, we say, I'm in fellowship with Jesus. It's all about him. It's all about the glory of Jesus. It's about his gospel, his church. It's not about how great we are. It's not about how great our ministries are. It's all about Jesus. He is above all else. And so I ask you, church, this morning, what are you filling yourself with? The tragedy is some people open their social media accounts more often than they do the word of God. And I'm willing to bet that people have a harder time not accessing their social media accounts than they do accessing the word of God. If they miss it a day, they just don't think about it. But if they miss Facebook for a day or Twittering a day or tweeting or whatever you do on those things, I don't know. You know, I can tell you're sitting with a group of people, even in silent mode, you know, when it just buzzes in your pocket, it buzzes. What do people have to do? They got to slip it out and they got to look at it. Yeah, I see some of you people doing that on Sunday morning. (laughs) You're in the middle of worshiping almighty God. You say, excuse me, God, I got to get this. No. Fill yourself with the word of God. Fill yourself with the spirit of God. Fill yourself with the presence of God. Be the beautiful bride of Christ. Fill yourself with Jesus. Surround yourself with people who love Jesus. You see, our opinions will not change the world. Our anger is not going to change the world. Our protests are not going to change the world. Our love for Jesus will transform the world. Amen. Amen. Here's the fourth point. You need the courage to let God in you. You know, the sad letter written in the book of Revelation to a church, it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's writing to the church. Think about this imagery. He said, I'm standing outside. I'm going this. Let me in. And he says, I will fellowship with you. Now, you understand fellowship isn't just a nice dinner. When you fellowship with Jesus, he messes everything up. He says, come and die. He says, I'm going to put you out in the front lines. He says, I'm going to use you in ways you never dreamed of. See, when we fellowship with Jesus, we are transformed. We see the life the way God sees it. Think of it this way. Old Testament is full of stories. Moses parting the Red Sea. David taking on Goliath. Jericho, where they marched around and the walls fell. The worst military strategy ever written. But you know, God does things differently than we do. Amen. And, you know, when you think about the home and the business and giving and worship, we get upset when he does it differently than we want him to do it. But see, if you see life according to you, they're just stories. If you see life according to God, you're going to say he still parts the waters. He still slays giants. He still brings down the walls of the enemy. See, the great tragedy is that we keep underestimating how much God wants to do in us and through us. And there's far too many of us that believe the lies that we've been told. That we are not good enough, not smart enough, not talented enough. And if only we had. See, what Mike's got extraordinary is his ability to do the impossible with the ordinary. I want to say that again. 
What makes God extraordinary is his ability to do the impossible with the ordinary. Everyday common people like you and me. Now, some of you need the courage this morning. You need the courage to invite Christ into your life. You've never done that. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to do that. So get the courage, okay? Others need the courage to step out in faith. You need to do it with your time, your money, your talents, your passions. You need to do it with your prayers. Maybe it's time that some of you, instead of praying for Aunt Mildred, I hope there's no Aunt Mildred here, broken arm, you pray fire down on this place. I think about Elijah. When confronted with the idols of his day, he called down fire from heaven. And I got to tell you, there are some things that we are hanging on to that need to be burned. So those that are prayer warriors, I'm going to ask you, pray for fire to come down on this place and to burn what needs to be burned. I thought about writing up the covenant that Nehemiah did and passing it down the aisles and having you sign it. (laughs) That would be different, wouldn't it? You're like, oh, I don't know if I want to because, I mean, they signed. Man, you, you look at what he had them sign. One thing to worship, another thing to say, okay, in writing, here's what we're going to do. Yes, bang, sign the document. So going back to the first challenge, if you're here this morning, you need the courage to invite Christ into your life. I want you to have stand up. We're going to put someone with you to talk about the decision you're going to make. But if you're here, you haven't invited Christ in your life as your personal Lord and Savior, stand right now. And we're going to, we're going to take care of this. Safe place to do this in. Anybody. I'm going to step back so I can see, get my eyes out of the light. Is there anybody here this morning? If I don't see you, just kind of yell at me. To all of us here, you know, I appreciate people emailing me and talking to me about the challenge I put out about fasting every week till Christmas. Those four things, where's God leading us? Pray against the enemies that come after us. Pray for people who join the cause and pray what's my part. I appreciate the stories and things that you are sharing with me. And of course, I talk about add-ons. This week, add-on the persecuted Christians. I mean, we're called to pray this week for that. And let's kind of add that on to our time when we're fasting. But to the rest of us, what kind of courage do you need to step up your game? To run the race so that at the end of that race, you literally collapse across the line because you left everything on the line. When you look at this covenant they made, where have you violated such covenant where instead of giving God the first, you've given him the last? And you need the courage this week to call it what it is. It's called sin. To make a commitment with him saying, listen, from here on out, here's how I'm going to play the game. In my home, in my business, with my stewardship, in my worship. And then you go out and do it. Now, if that's you, I encourage you to share that with a group of people that you have. Because that's where accountability is born. But I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to close just in a worship song that talks about how great our God is. In order to do that, I think we need to stand in honor of who he is. So let's stand. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to let God do what God does so well. Amen? Amen. Father God.
this kind of blows us away when Nehemiah, I mean, he, he called it out. He wrote it down and he says, okay, everybody who understands this, you're going to sign it because you're going to live it. It's not good enough just to rebuild the wall and our houses and for a week of worship. No, this is an ongoing lifestyle that we need to trust you for who you are. We need to have faith that you will do the impossible. And I pray for those this morning, Lord, that are living with lies that say, well, if only, if not, and they they hang on to things that just are not benefiting their own spirit and their soul. They got weights that are just dragging them down. They got sins that are putting them in bondage. I just pray they release them, call it out, name it, and they get on living in your word and in your spirit by the grace of your son. You're an incredible God, Lord. It's time that we live that to your glory, not ours. And everyone said, amen.